This episode is dedicated to Alan for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. And this is Southpaw. On this episode of Southpaw, we have Huda Amori and AJ from Palestine Action. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So this is our first episode directly about Palestine. And since many of our listeners learn about the topics we're discussing for the first time here, I thought it would be good to give context to listeners and start chronologically by giving an explainer about the Palestine-Israel conflict, how we got to now and why this should matter to all of us who are conscientious. So Huda, could you give us an overview? Yeah, definitely. So my own background, um, I am Palestinian on my father's side. So from a British kind of context, actually, Britain in 1917 issued the Balfour Declaration, which was done by the UK Foreign Secretary at the time. And it basically called for the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people in order to create a Jewish homeland in historic Palestine where the vast majority, 97% of the population, were not Jewish. So this meant that they had to be forced out, including my own family. Uh, it was actually in the uh, early 1920s when my own great-grandfather was shot and killed by a, by a British soldier during the British colonisation of Palestine. And then we saw in some some decades later, in 1948, is what we call the Nakba, which translates into English as the Great Catastrophe. And this is when Zionist militia basically forced out more than half of the indigenous population of Palestine. So that was 750,000 Palestinians were for, forced out of their homes. In the process, they destroyed over 500 towns and villages um, attacked and murdered many Palestinian families, did violent assaults against women, men and children. Um, and essentially after that, the remaining parts where Palestinians lived was later occupied by uh, Israel's regime. So from then on, Palestinians are basically living under uh, the apartheid regime of Israel. Uh, it was actually in 1967 when my own father was uh, basically, he was a young child and he was with uh, my aunties and uncles and the Israeli military were basically shooting into the front window of their home. And the only way they managed to escape was by hiding under the table in their front room and then crawling out the house with just the clothes they had on their backs, basically, and no shoes on, and they had to run um, and hide in caves for three days without any humanitarian aid. But this is um, a story which is very common, to be honest, for all Palestinians, and it all roots back to the illegal occupation of Palestine and the system of ethnic cleansing, basically, to create 
the Israeli state and ethnically cleansing the indigenous population continues to this day. So we see in the West Bank, um, Palestinians are constantly forced to live under uh, you know, the brutal Israeli military rule, which means that if you want to go to school or you want to go to work, you are forced to go through checkpoints in your own land. Many Palestinians are shot and killed at these checkpoints. Women are sometimes forced to actually give birth on these checkpoints. Um, and, and this is a daily reality for Palestinians there. And also, they constantly face the threat of home demolitions, which means, um, basically, if you're Palestinian, your, your home could be demolished in order to create the ever-expanding illegal Israeli settlements. And we see in Gaza, Gaza has been under brutal land, air and sea blockades for over a decade. It's one of the most densely populated areas on earth, where the vast majority of the population are children and refugees who've been previously displaced from other parts of Palestine and are constantly subject to bombardments um, of drones, bombs, etc., which are used to basically oppress and kill the Palestinians that live there. Could you explain for people what exactly is the West Bank? Yeah, so basically, if you see, you know, Palestine or historic Palestine on a map, what has happened is that the remaining parts where Palestinians um, are occupied and, and inhabit are divided from the bottom of, I would say, the bottom east of anything, um, whereas the Gaza Strip and the West Bank is the part on the west side. So basically, Gaza and the West Bank are separated off. And in the middle is where is what we call um, Israel State, basically. And actually, even within Israel, there are 20% of the population there are actually Palestinian citizens of Israel who have more than 50 laws which discriminate against them. So basically, geographically, they're two completely separate areas, which are the remaining parts of historic Palestine where Palestinians basically inhabit, but all under an occupation. So based on the history you gave us, it's not as cheery or as simple as what a lot of us have learned, where World War II happened and Jewish people needing a place to go. This has started before then. Yes. So the colonization of Palestine did begin before then, but also for Palestinians. Um, and and I think the context that we're given in the West is very much around the Holocaust. But that anti-Semitism wasn't brought by the Palestinians. If anything, it was brought by Europe towards uh, the Jewish people. But basically, this, this colonial plan um, manifested in forcing out the indigenous population of Palestine to create a Jewish homeland. And in some ways, I, I do think it's quite simple, really, what's happened. But often people are given a very different view of it or are told, are told a different view. And a lot of it is propaganda. Uh, we don't, Palestinians and Palestine don't really have much um if any voice in the mainstream media when it comes to what the reality is for Palestinians. If anything, the only time there is some sort of voice is when Palestinians are under a brutal assault, which is happening all the time, 
but when there's a certain escalation and even then it's portrayed as something which is two-sided or clashes when clearly Israel are committing war crimes against the Palestinian people. It's asymmetrical. Exactly. Exactly. Can you define for us apartheid and its context to Israel? I think especially here in the U.S., we're purposely not taught that term or that term isn't often used, especially about the U.S., so we might not know. So could you give us a primer on that? Yeah, it's basically the systematic and um, discrimination using laws and other tools um, that a state has, such as their military, the legal system, which discriminates against a whole group of people based on um, their ethnicity, where they're from. So in the context of Palestine, it's Israel systematically discriminating against the indigenous population of Palestine simply because they are Palestinian. and. That's that's the fact on the ground, and that's just that to me just shows how really how simple it is. But if you are a Palestinian living in the West Bank or living in Gaza, then your experience of living on that land is very different to those who are Jewish Israeli. Um, you know, they in some parts they even have two completely different roads for Palestinians and for Israelis. Israelis do not have to go through checkpoints. They are under what's called a civilian law legal system, whereas Palestinians are under a military legal system, which basically means if you get, which happens frequently, very frequently, if you get arrested um, as a Palestinian, then you are taken to Israeli prisons and then the court system that you are under is the court of the occupier where they basically, I don't know the exact stat, but it's something of like a 99% conviction rate. There is no chance of justice in that kind of system. It's designed to be biased against the Palestinian population. Whereas obviously, if you are Israeli and Jewish, you have a very different legal system, which does not have that same level of bias against you. So there is a completely different set of rules that Palestinians are subject under compared to Jewish Israelis. And I think, you know, when we see Palestinians in the West Bank, for example, often, and this happened to my own family, their homes they may have had for generations in their family. And Israel can say to them, give them basically a notice to say, you have 30 days to demolish your own home. And if you don't demolish your own home, you have to pay the costs it will cost the occupier to demolish that home. So basically, they put Palestinians under this. It's not just a physical assault. It's a mental assault where you'll, if you don't destroy your home and become make your family homeless, essentially, and become refugees, then you have to pay the costs to the occupier. And if you don't do that, then they bring in bulldozers, often from the U.S., actually, and the UK, um, which are weaponized by Israel and then used to basically bring that home to the ground, whether or not a Palestinian family is inside. And then what happens is settlements, which are all illegal and under international law, um, are built on top of that Palestinian home. Or sometimes you can even see a Palestinian family being dragged out of their home and they're pulling in place Jewish-Israeli citizens. So the contrast between how the two are treated is, is, is quite 
huge. And it's quite obvious, um, you know, when you know the reality on the ground that there really is no better word to describe it than apartheid. So it's not just an injury. It's like an injury on top of injury on top of injury. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, Palestine has been going through this for um, over 74 over 74 years now and it is a daily reality um, whichever part you live in whether you're in Palestine or outside of Palestine and you're denied you know your right to return home I cannot go to Palestine as a Palestinian but any Jewish person anywhere has the right to go and visit and they call it the birthright whereas I me as a Palestinian I don't have a right now you alluded to this earlier but how are countries like Great Britain and the U.S. involved in all this, not just historically, but even now? Well, today we can see politically Israel describes Britain, for example, as one of its key strategic allies. Um, they give them a lot of political support. But actually what we see now is how the arms trade is working in Western countries and facilitating the continued occupation of Palestine. Um, the US gives, I think it's about $3.8 billion a year in terms of military aid to Israel to, to help um, you know, continue its, its arms trade. But the arms trade in Israel basically exists because of the domination over the Palestinian people. It needed weapons in order to keep the Palestinians down and in order to keep the Palestinians oppressed, basically. And we see now that the West massively profits from it. Um, so, for example, companies like Albert Systems, which is Israel's largest arms company, actually formed in 1966. This was a year before my family was forced out. And they were, they, they were formed, basically, to arm Israel's apartheid regime and to force out the Palestinian people. All of their weapons, the vast majority of them, are actually developed and tested, and they market them as tested on the people of Gaza, on the people of the West Bank, on the Palestinian people. And so the occupation is, is making so much money for these companies, especially the arms trade. And in Britain and in the US, massively so, we see how these companies like Albert Systems are operating and are building such weapons after they're developed on the Palestinian people, creating this whole global economy, all profiting from the occupation. Um, and then these weapons, after they're tested on Palestinians, built in Britain, built in the US as well, and then they're exported across the world to be used in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Kashmir, to actually they export this, the tools of oppression. And Israel is very good at this because their whole existence is based on dominating the Palestinian people. So they had to build weapons in order to suppress the rights of the Palestinians. And this meant they could sell it on and basically say, look, this is tested. We have a whole entrapped population in Gaza who we can basically use as a laboratory. No other country has that. And they make it. They make so much money off it, and other countries, as a result, that support Israel, also make money off the occupation. And so that's what we see today massively: is that the West continues to support profiteering, basically, from the oppression of the Palestinian people. 
So the occupation then is used as a marketing tool. Exactly. So along with Elbit Systems, there's also a company called KBR. Yes. So KBR actually work in tandem with Elbit Systems. And KBR, they made over $40 billion in contracts over the US and Britain's invasion of Iraq. So I think they were the main company who profited the most, basically, from the invasion of Iraq and also in Afghanistan as well. And this is another company, and this is actually a US company. They also operate in Britain and they work in tandem with Albert Systems. So you can see how you know these war criminals, basically, and these arms companies who literally only have an industry um, because there is people that they would like to oppress and kill, basically. And as long as you have war, apartheid, and oppression, and occupation of places, then these companies will continue to thrive and fuel it. And actually, the continuation of allowing these companies to operate means that more people will die as a result. It's as, it's as simple as that, really. As long as they operate, there are people who are alive today who might not be tomorrow. Then these arms dealers, they're not even rivals. They're interconnected and colluding in this. Yeah. I mean, like any industry, there is some level of competition, but actually most of them may compete with each other in certain ways, like compete for certain contracts, but actually how they often operate is when they want to gain a government contract, they will band together to create a really good portfolio to show and and fulfill that contract. So often they are working together, as you said. And this isn't just arms manufacturers. This reminds me of like what a lot of especially U.S. companies, what they did in Latin America or in the global South, where they worked together to take over these countries. Yeah. I mean, they, they have a common goal. And actually, they need each other to keep their industry alive and, and thriving. They need to work together. And, you know, most most weapons out there aren't built in a certain, in just one place. They have so many different components. You know, I think like one fighter jet could have, for example, over 100 different components, many of which are built by different companies or different subsidiaries in different parts of the world to come together and make this weapon. And that's how, you know, they're all profiting and gaining from each other and from the occupation of Palestine, the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, and in, and in other places as well. So none of them want the independence of a country they profit from. It makes sense that they're constantly subjugated. Yes, exactly. They all have a common goal. And so they will work together. And often most of these arms companies have have doors into, into the halls of power. Um, and and the, you can see how they continue to profit from it. And also why there is really little motivation if any motivation by those who are powerful and politicians and governments to actually work to support the idea of not violating international law or not supporting apartheid because there is a huge industry profiting from it and and as a result britain profits from it 
there's been historians and journalists who bring this up, but especially with the U.S., when they talk about things happening in other countries, they almost never use the term international law. They often use vague, undefinable terms like freedom and democracy, because if they were to use the term international law, it would highlight how they constantly violate it or ignore it or often didn't sign off on those laws. Yeah, d- definitely. And it, it's quite frustrating, but it's just reality that often all we're asking for is for you know countries like Britain to actually respect international law and respect human rights conventions and all of these things that they're supposed to be upholding and we're such a civilised it's always saying that we're such a civilized country, et cetera, but we're literally allowing arms manufacturers who profit from murdering people across the world to operate on our doorsteps. And we're willing to ignore international law in order to allow them to continue to profit. You know, in my eyes, there was nothing civilized about it. And often, you know, America and the US will say things like when they want to invade Iraq or other places, we're going to bring them democracy and freedom. But I think it's quite obvious that that's just not the reality of what's happened. My my mum's family are actually um, Iraqi, so I'm Palestinian and Iraqi. And, um, I, you know, I remember when when the US and Britain decided to invade Iraq um, and the consequences that had on my family, but also the Iraq that my mother knew before that happened. And... Um, how, you know, her best friend growing up, she was from a Shia Muslim background. Her best friend was Christian. She married a man who was Sunni. And there was no issues. There was no issues, you know, people respected and loved each other. And what happens is when Western countries come and, um, you know, carry out their imperialist policies in these countries is that they divide and conquer and they separate out those communities and they basically you know, create all of these divisions and they completely destroyed Iraq. And again, the connections to Palestine and these other issues are are very real. And companies like Elbit actually make that connection very obvious. When you see the, the drones that were used in Gaza, developed in Gaza, were also used then in Iraq. When the company that profited the most from the invasion of Iraq is then working with Israel's largest arms firm to continue to make money for each other and to keep each other thriving. How they ignore international laws and conventions says a lot about who these Western countries count as people. Well, that's the that's the truth of it. And I remember actually when I started, I was always kind of political, but when I started getting involved in activism was after um, I went out during during the refugee crisis in 2015. And I saw thousands of people coming in, suffering from hypothermia, very little help um, to assist them. And I remember thinking at the time, well, surely if Britain's a democracy and I have a voice, then, you know, maybe it was naive of me, then I can try and do something to stop the arms trade, which is fueling all of these wars, which is driving these refugees to despair and to their death in a lot of cases. And that's what I tried to do. And obviously, you know, it just showed that it wasn't the case, that everything you try and do within what they tell you, you're allowed to do and you're supposed to do to create change. And actually, you're completely ignored. 
you start to realize that the idea of democracy only applies to some or to some issues. And what you said about Iraq of dividing people up reminds me of what the British Empire did in India. So these methods continue and are hallmarks of Western imperialism. Yeah, it's the same tactics again and again and again. I remember last year during the bombardment of the Gaza Strip, Joe Biden approved $735 million in arms sales to Israel. For people who keep hearing about Gaza, but not quite sure what Gaza is, can you explain a little bit more about the Gaza Strip, what the bombardment did? Yeah, definitely. So Gaza is a part of Palestine, which is basically for over a decade has been under a land, air and sea blockade, which means that they basically can't get much in and things and people cannot get out. They're denied their freedom of movement. People are essentially trapped there. It's one of the most densely populated areas on earth and is often described as the world's largest open air prison. The vast majority of people there, I think I mentioned before, are actually been already displaced from their homes. So they're already refugees living within the Gaza Strip. And the situation there is quite stark in terms of like, you know, the access to drinking water, access to electricity, all of these things are stopped by Israel. And actually at one point, Israel would calorie count based on how many people lived in Gaza, how much food could go in based on the minimum calories that you would need. So it's so disgusting. And obviously no one is ever going to have calorie count per bit, how much food they're going to have. So people obviously starved. And often what happens is Palestinians in Gaza are subject to bombardments by Israel. And all the time, basically, Elbit's drones are flying over top of Palestinians in Gaza. They're used to fail them all of the time. It's quite common for them to see warplanes flying over them and they can't leave. They are basically trapped. And in certain points in time, there will be bombardments of Gaza by Israel where literally, you know, they just send missiles and bombs in, often killing numerous families and destroying, you know, Palestinian communities, destroying hospitals, the only power plant they have, destroying offices of media, like, for for example, Al Jazeera, when I think it was the Associated Press office, was literally targeted and, and crumbled to the ground whilst live on TV, whilst an Al Jazeera report was live on TV. Um, And so this is something which, unfortunately, is quite common for the people of Gaza to experience. Last May, we saw this happen again. And in the space of 11 days, they basically killed over, I think it was 200 Palestinians, over 67 children. and they actually wiped out every single member of 20 families in Gaza. And what Elbit did at that time was they actually used swarms of drones for the very first time we saw this in the world. And they were actually artificial intelligence swarms of drones. Rather than a single drone operated by a single person, it would be multiple drones basically flying overhead um, and would only require one person basically behind a computer screen hundreds of miles away 
um, from actually the situation on the ground, which was conducting a lot of these attacks. And Albert, as well as largest arms firm, literally sat with the Israeli military. So not only did they provide the weapons for them, but they sat with the Israeli military and said that they were proud to conduct over 30 strikes during that time. So they're sitting in the, you know, whatever you want to call it, their war room um, and planning who to kill. And they say that these drones are supposedly meant to make it um, more targeted. So you'll have less civilian deaths, so they say, right? But actually, we're not seeing that. We're seeing more of anything. And so it begs the question of, are they obviously doing this on purpose to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians? Or maybe this whole idea of modern warfare is actually much more lethal um, than, than what's happened in the past. I mean, if you're in Gaza and you have seen these drones target and missiles fall down and attack your neighbor's home, and every single day you have to see the same drones flying above your head, it's torture and it's constant trauma, not just for children, for everyone, for adults uh, living there. And that's what they have to live through every day. And often we only see in the West when it's at its absolute peak in terms of the attacks on Palestinians. But these attacks happen routinely. And every day that the occupation continues, every year that the blockade of Gaza continues, more lives are taken. And we see actually that actually the Palestinians are very resilient and have gone en masse to protest against the Israeli occupation in Gaza and have been shot whilst doing so. And they keep going back and back and back, knowing that they're facing bullets, knowing that they could be killed. But they do it because for them, their lives are already, they don't have freedom. And for them, they don't have they they have nothing else to lose, but they have everything to gain. Um, so I think it's it's tragic, but also the way Palestinians resist is also inspiring at the same time. And I think it left seventy thousand people unhoused or more. Yes, seventy thousand displaced. And actually, I think the Palestinian refugee population is at over six, seven million at the moment. I think it's one of the biggest refugee populations in the whole world. So they were already refugees. And then, like I said about injury, instead of even insult to injury, it's just an injury on top of the injury. You're displaced and then you get displaced again. Yeah. And, you know, often people say about post-traumatic stress disorder, but in Gaza, there is no post. It's just continual. Like you said, it's just injury on injury on injury. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now, while all of this was happening, can you tell us about Joe Biden approving 735 million in arms sales and what the point of that was and why he would do it during such a time of devastation? To be honest, I think every 
every US administration has supported Israel's apartheid regime. It's very similar to Britain. Um, and actually, you know, the US have assisted the occupation of Palestine, just like Britain, since the very, very beginning. Um, they don't have a moral compass when it comes to Palestinians or when it comes to a lot of people who aren't white across the world, basically. Um, so that was just another show, I believe, of showing that the US will always stand by Israel, no matter what they do, no matter what happens. You know, we've had so many war crimes committed and things that you can point to and say, you know, this is a war crime, maybe we should stop supporting them. But it doesn't it doesn't affect them. And I think that's why, you know, just as Joe Biden, um, to be honest, I lost track of how many and which politicians have stabbed the Palestinian people in the back or in the front, to be honest, because they were never really on side. But it's just it's not going to change through um, the political system or through those in power. And Joe Biden is no exception. You know, just like George Bush, Barack Obama, they've all, they all might be slightly more liberal in certain ways, but when it comes to imperialism and when it comes to the Palestinians and the Iraqis and people across the world, it really makes no difference because they all are the same in that sense when you look at it from from the oppressed people across the world's point of view. It doesn't surprise me, but it's obviously disgusting. So to your point then, Israel probably didn't even need more arms or even more money. It's probably a sign then to say, hey, we're standing in solidarity with Israel and the occupation. Exactly. Exactly. And politically, this is it's not even just about the financial aspect of it, like you said. It's about the political aspect and to show that they still have American support, no matter what they've done to Palestinians in Gaza, that you're still going to have this support from the international governments. And the US is obviously a crucial one. Um, and so politically, that keeps... It's, it's a nod to say to Israel, keep going with your apartheid regime. We're not going to stop you. Now, you also raised an important point about technology, how technology is used as basically propaganda to sanitize war and occupation and make it seem more, quote unquote, humane. Yes, definitely. So um, so we are told often that, you know, modern warfare, this, these are things like drones which have come come across and how they try and sell it to the public is that you know, we can be more targeted in our killing. It means that basically, if you are the oppressor, then there is really no risk for you. If you can send an unmanned, um, uh, you know, drone and that can drop a bomb over the people of Gaza, then there is zero risk, but there is every risk for the person on the other side of that. So for some, it works great for them. But for the others who are on the other side of those weapons, it's extremely dangerous to see the trajectory of how it keeps on going. And the drone swarms was just the latest in this. And actually, even by people who support, like, and people in the like defense news industry, as they call it, defense, the arms industry, we're saying, we're criticizing it and saying, we can't go down, we can't go this far. When you start using artificial intelligence weapons, which basically means now not even a person needs to operate it, or you just need one person 
to control basically an army of drones which can target, surveil and attack Palestinians and others across the world because that's that's what happens. It's, it's developed in Gaza and now we're seeing it. We're seeing contracts made with the British government um, to have these same technology. So once it's used, as it was used for the first time in Gaza in May, then it's exported across the world and it makes the powerful basically more powerful and those about the power more powerless in a sense. So when they talk about being more humane, what they're not saying out loud is it's more humane for the oppressor, not the oppressed. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's exactly the opposite of humane. You're basically, it's, it's robots killing humans. And the people behind making the decisions of who they kill are those who've been carrying out colonial projects for decades, which means it's people like the Palestinians and others across the world who are going to be the victim of it. It won't be those who are the colonizers. Now, it's not just weapons these companies make. They also make surveillance technology. I think you mentioned that earlier. What is the connection between surveillance and militarization? Well, in order to have a in order to keep a population down and to keep them subjugated and oppressed, then they basically want to make sure that you know that they can see everything you do. And that means that every track, everything, you know, is, is constantly surveilled by these drones which are flying above your heads. If anything, it entrenches the apartheid regime over the Palestinians in Gaza and it's a daily reminder that you are under occupation, that the colonizer and the person who may have, or sorry, not the person, but the regime that may have attacked your family before, killed your neighbors before, destroyed your school, is hovering above your head all of the time. And the surveillance is not just used to basically keep track of what Palestinians are doing. It's a mental torture for them. And also it means that they can target Palestinians whenever they like using these drones, often they target families. So even though they say that they're surveilling and they are aware of what's happening in these uh, towns where Palestinians are living in, actually the targets end up and the victims often end up being Palestinian families. And we see it that the surveillance that is used, you know, we see it in the checkpoints as well that uh, they're using biometric data more and more. It's becoming like much more advanced surveillance technology, uh, facial recognition. Every, every movement you can do can be tracked by the occupier and used against you whenever they like, basically. They actually, it's the surveillance as well that um, many companies in Israel are also providing to uh, places like Britain. And we know for a fact that, you know, Britain is heavily surveilled, but also to places like America. So again, it's, it, keeps, it keeps the powerful more powerful and normal people basically are under, under that constantly. So the colonizer always talks about protecting the world from Big Brother when they are Big Brother. They are Big Brother, 100%. And I think it's becoming more and more obvious to actually people everywhere that this is a a rising issue and it's it's already there you know it's it's literally for palestinians it's part of the reality you know the occupation as i mentioned before it needed to surveil it needed to attack and it needed to 
massacre and ethnically cleansed the Palestinian population. So all of these technologies were used and created and developed from that. But this is stuff that's being used everywhere. And as you say, it's for it's it is for the colonizers or in places like Britain, for example, it's for the establishment to maintain um and to maintain power over the normal people in that country. And as long as we allow it to happen in one place, I think with all of these things, you know, when it comes to the drone technology, the warfare, surveillance, um, and the colonization of Palestine is once it is allowed to thrive in one place, like it is so clearly in Palestine, then it is a matter of time before the same technology is exported and used across the world, mainly against other colonized people, but also we see how the same technology is used in places like Britain against refugees, for example. The same drones which are tested on Palestine are used to stop refugees from seeking safety in Britain. So the same company who profits from driving people out of their homes actually then profits from trying to stop that those same people from seeking safety. And that's why we have to, you know, for us in Palestine Action, so it's so crucial that from where we are, that we act because it is so close to home. And these com- companies and the weapons that are made to kill Palestinians and to kill other people across the world are never built in front of the people that they will kill. They're built in front of us, whether that's the US or Britain. Um, and that's where we actually have an opportunity to intervene in this lethal global supply chain. What is the separation wall? So the separation wall is basically um, it's basically designed to keep Palestinians trapped in where Israel basically says you're allowed to live. So it runs through the West Bank, and again, it's built with technology made by Elbit, um, and it's a huge, huge wall. And you can see how the the separation between those inside it, the Palestinians, and those outside of it. Again, just showing the clear apartheid system um, that runs for Palestinian people. We also see in Gaza, where they're trying to build a wall around the Gaza Strip, again, to entrap the Palestinians um, and to separate them out from, from the Jewish Israelis, basically, and often to separate them out from their own, from their own families as well. But, you know, in Gaza, it's, they're not actually just building it above the ground. It runs, they're building it down below the ground as well. So you are literally trapped. And then your only way in and out is through occupation soldiers who decide if you get to leave or decide who gets to enter. It's just another form of control. So the wall Trump wanted that horrified many Americans already exists, but it traps Palestinians. So. It raises the question, is that why they don't care? Well, actually, again, it was um, Elbit, the same company who built the electronics and the technology for the apartheid wall in Palestine, gained the contract for the, the US-Mexico wall. <laughs> again, it's just, another, it's just another way of how it's, you know, it starts off in Palestine so often. And when you allow it to keep going, it, 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 does, it goes across the world, but it's the same... It was literally inspired by that. Wow. I had no idea. 
you couldn't make it up, could you? Like the 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 links are crazy, but it's just how how they work. Yeah, it sounds like tactics of a comic book villain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now you're both in England for such a small country. Why does it seem like so many weapons are produced there? Yeah, so essentially, I believe uh, the basically. Uh, Britain decided it needed a role to fill after it lost its place as hegemon. <laughs> like once the US like firmly established itself to be like the new global empire, the new thing that's in charge of the entire world, that gets to police the entire world, that gets to decide who's able to make what decisions. Uh, Britain realized after having so much success uh, with, say, uh, using armed militias like it did in the United States, like it did in Israel, to take over these uh, indigenous populations and these and take control of these lands. That they could essentially well, if we if we're not going to be the ones on top anymore, we can we can find profit being the middleman. We can find profit being the developers. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that let the UK essentially take over the world was just building up the largest navy which was a necessity at the time being an isolated island but i think you know it's always been sort of central to how we've taken over other places is that it's all about the arsenal so I i think both like the the relationship we've had with like on the ground militias and like on the ground mercenaries and things like that in order to displace other governments and other civilizations and the way that building up as large an arsenal as possible has always been central to how we've committed our own military actions i think like both culturally and in industry it 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 just leads so easily to realizing that that is a place that we can fall into I think actually it were like the second largest exporter of arms in the world and we're such a small country that it's just crazy when you think about it. When you see it on a map, just how prevalent the arms trade is. And often it's in, you know, it's not in like the centre of metropolitan cities. It's in like the more like rural towns where they build a lot of these weapons, often because it's actually cheaper to operate there. Um, But you know, I, I think AJ AJ covered it basically. You know, we often say post colonialism and all of that stuff, but it's like no, you still profit from colonialism. It's just more directly through the arms industry and less overtly going directly to to colonized places. But it's through other ways that they continue to profit from the oppression of other people. So it's disproportionate. Then they are still very much. A world leader just in a different role like per capita it sounds like they make more arms than anybody else so their role has changed but they're very much a leader in profiting off of oppression and colonialism yeah i mean we're still we're still one of the world's like biggest hotbeds not just for arms production but also for arms fairs like there's uh at this point, more arms fairs than I can name, it, like open in like diff- based in different cities across the UK, uh, and you know at, at these arms fairs you'll have private corporations, you'll have different police uh, forces, you'll have different military groups, you'll have different mercenary groups, 
uh, all coming together, um, often in line to purchase weapons which they will theoretically be using on each other in their own conflicts, but in practice are actually almost always used on, like, say if it's bought by a specific nation or a specific branch of a government, then it's it's more likely that whatever they're purchasing is going to be used on their own citizens than someone else's. Obviously, when it, when it comes to, like, an occupied state, who counts as being your own citizen is uh, up for question, or at least you want it to be. But all these places, all these different groups who seemingly have conflicting interests come together in this country and, you know, hang out and, t- and talk shop and buy what they can and take that home. And they all contribute to this global policing, to this global market, uh, which all comes out of the experimental laboratory of Palestine. Can you tell us about Palestine Action? Yeah, so Palestine Action is a direct action network. Uh, so what that essentially means is rather than being, say, a political party or a campaign group who lobbies uh, public opinion or lobbies people in power to make legislative changes, uh, what we do is connect people to empower them to make those changes themselves. Uh, So essentially, being in an empirical core, being in like the heart of empire, heart of former empire, however you want to consider this country, uh, having all this production here is obviously disgusting, uh, but it's also an opportunity in the sense that whatever we do in the UK, to what whatever level of escalation things reach, we are not going to be treated as harshly as Palestinian people who are actually in Palestine. Obviously, Palestinian people in the UK are more likely to be treated more harshly than non-Palestinian people in the UK. Like those things still hold true, but regardless, you know, we're we're we just we we just don't face the same threat. And at the at, at the end of the day, I think something that these arms companies teach us is that it's a lot easier to destroy something than it is to build something. And when the center of production is here that means we have the opportunity to destroy the production <laughs> you know there's the old uh the old marxist slogan of uh, seize, seize the means of production we don't we don't want the we don't want these means of production we want them destroyed and at the, I, I think as a direct action network we are about connecting people who have the same aim and giving them the chance to work together towards that because at the end of the day no matter how well guarded these factories are no matter what security measures they take it's a lot easier for someone to breach the security and to shut down the factory and to damage the means of production and to halt production or you know disrupt the supply chain in a way which is extremely meaningful in terms of its material effects uh, so even if if someone goes and shuts down a factory for a couple of weeks, you know that hasn't changed legislation about whether or not they are allowed to produce these weapons here. That hasn't changed the legal status of Elbit Systems. Uh, they they are still considered a, le- a lawful business, despite the fact that 
everything they do flies in the face of international law, flies in the face of domestic British law, because you know we know how policing works. It's policing is to protect corporate interests. It's not to protect us as civilians or to enact our will as as a people. It's to protect the corporate interest. So if the corporate interest is breaking the law, those laws will not be enforced against them. But but we can enforce them ourselves. And once we have shut down that factory, even if it's just for two weeks, that's two that's two weeks things aren't working smoothly for them. That's two weeks that they can't get an engine into a drone. And obviously they've already got they they have so much of this weaponry already, and as you said, they keep getting given more. Whether that's by uh, Biden because he's decided he wants to give a gift just as a gesture of goodwill or whatever, or whether that's business as usual, they have a lot on hand, but they are still constantly in need of more because that's how capitalism works. The expansion has to be constant, and when you have a trapped population that you're experimenting on, that means that what you're experimenting them on them with can't stay the same. You have to be constantly developing new technologies. So for Palestine Action, our aim is to stop the development of those technologies, to stop the production of those technologies, to raise awareness uh, both nationally, internationally, and on the local level in the communities where these factories are based of well, the fact that they exist in the first place, the historical and current context that they exist in politically, and the fact that we have the power to stop them. That says a lot about changing laws if it's easier to shut down a factory than change legislation. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the government is not interested in changing any laws or, or using the ones that are already in place that should prevent any of these things from happening. The, go- the government is invested uh, quite literally in the project of the state of Israel. Uh, you know, we mentioned KBR and Elbit Systems earlier. Uh, so, you know, th- they are actually each hold f- a 50% share in what's called uh, Affinity Flying Services, which trains uh, pi- pilots for the UK's Royal Air, Fo- Air Force. Uh, it also like on behalf of the Royal Air Force, trains pilots for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to uh, bomb Yemen with arms that are supplied by the UK and by the US and Syria as well, of course. So like when we talk about how the experiment and, you know, we heard the example of the border wall as well. When we hear, when, when these companies who are always lying about their role uh, and about what it is they do, when we hear what they say, it's so obvious when they're telling the truth. And when they say that like these we- these weapons are battle tested or they they are, you know, whatever other language they use, that they that they are test te- battle tested is usually what they say on Palestinians. That is that is the truth of the matter. Like everything that they are being that they are developing is being developed on a captive population. And all of these companies, all of these governments who are financially tied to these operations continuing, they are not interested in laws changing to stop that. They are interested in business continuing. They are interested in the expansion of profits in business as usual, essentially. If you love the Southpaw Project, 
please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, SouthpawPod. How diverse is Palestine Action? I think you were even telling me about members who are Israeli dissidents. So it's not just Palestinians. So can you tell us a bit about the makeup and who are the types of people who care about this and why they care about this, how they got to caring about this? Uh, yeah, no, so I'm not Palestinian. I'm a white British-born citizen. And, you know, but I, I think... In that sense, I'm not necessarily a minority within Palestine Action, although there 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 are a lot of there are a lot of members who have more of a familial or cultural connection to Palestine. But in terms of like actual Palestinian members, th- like that's that's not like very common because, of course, Palestinian uh, members would be cracked down on a lot harder than non-Palestinian members, essentially. But I know we do have a lot of Muslim members. Um, we have a lot of transgender members, and yeah. But but in terms of like actual demographics, it's we. There's a lot of young people, but we also get you know we've had people in the seventies up on roofs before. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of variation, and yeah, there we we also have some members who are Jewish Israeli dissidents uh, who are prominent members of the anti-Zionist community in uh, in general, but um, are currently two two specific ones I'm thinking of, uh, Ronnie Barker and Stavit Sinai, who are actually currently being imprisoned in the UK for a recent action they undertook to mark the 74th anniversary of the Nakba. Uh, I say anniversary of the Nakba, I mean anniversary of the beginning of the Nakba, because, you know, <laughs> the Nakba is still ongoing. It's not just a day. <laughs> But yeah, so it's it, we have a we do have a relatively very diverse makeup in terms of who's a member of the network. Uh, but I think the thing that you know unites us is essentially that whether or not we are ourselves part of an oppressed group, the oppression of the Palestinians is so so stark and so obvious as soon as you see it. As soon as you begin to see it, you only see more and more. And it is also, I think, just from the way every uh, from the way everything seems to spring from Palestine in both a, in an economic sense as well as in a political sense, it's just so obvious how all of our oppressions are interconnected. I think it's 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 so obvious. And it's it's also just, you know, it's it's a basic model issue. It's it's a very basic model issue. Like we can we can get into the history and the econ- and the economics of it all because they are very important and you know should be discussed. But at the end of the day, you just have to see the suffering, and you know for a lot of people that's enough. That's enough to spare action. I, I think a lot of people get involved in Palestine action. I know this is true for me basically because they they have seen the other actions are taking place and you know that's part of the beauty of direct action 
the same way that every, anything Elbert Systems or anything the Israeli government or, or whatever do in Palestine, it never just serves one purpose. You know, if they are doing something brutally oppressive to the Palestinians, that serves the purpose of both suppressing that population and developing the systems of oppression to then sell to other people and to work as proof of concept for marketing. You know, it's at least three things. There are always multiple purposes being served. And I think for direct action, it's the same thing. You know, as I said earlier, we have the power to shut down these factories, but also we have the power to show other people that they have the power. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people get involved from seeing actions other members have done. And usually that is enough to spur them into action as well, because they see that other people are doing it and they realize, why aren't I doing the same? Now I've seen the recent war with Ukraine being used as an excuse for social media platforms to cast a wide net and go after Palestinian activists or anyone supporting Palestine in general. I haven't seen this many bans among my friends basically ever. Have things also been more difficult for Palestine action as well lately? To answer the question directly and to not go off about uh, <laughs> the Ukraine and, and, and how that's affected conversations around Palestine, I think Yes, it, things are, have been more difficult for us lately in terms of the specific reaction we've got from uh, the police and the courts recently. There, there, there is currently what we call the crackdown on us that is very apparent. Um, after the uh, action that I mentioned earlier on the uh, 74th anniversary at the beginning of Nakba, so that was the 15th of May this year. The actionists who were arrested were not treated the way actionists who are usually are usually treated when they're arrested. You know, quite often in in the UK, police are theoretically they're allowed to hold you for up to 24 hours, at which point they either have to charge you or release you. In the past, Sometimes groups have been held for 23 and a half hours before they were released. And that, that has been considered a long time. So they, they can uh, apply for extensions, which mean that they're allowed to hold you longer. Uh, but this isn't supposed to happen outside of major cases. And it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but after this action on the 15th, uh, there was an extension applied for to essentially mean that the police could hold the activists up to 36 hours rather than just 24. Uh, and then that 36 hours came up at like 2 a.m. on the Tuesday morning after the action that took place on, on the Sunday. And they were still held, which essentially at that point meant that they automatically became the problem of the Crown Prosecution Service and they had to go to court. Uh, when they were at court, six out of the nine activists were granted bail, which is uh, usual. Usually we're granted bail most of the time at the police station before it even makes it to the court. Because in, in the UK, police bail and court bail are very different things in terms of legal weight and in terms of what they can demand of you. But the Crown Prosecution Service essentially appealed all bail granted. Because there were nine activists, they were tried, the hearings were done in sets of three. 
And after the first set of three, when bail was granted and then they appealed it, they then basically openly said like that they were going to continue to appeal any bail given, which is, you know, quite unprecedented in terms of reaction from the state. So that meant that our activists were automatically held and sent to prison, which is obviously very distressing and is an escalation. Eventually, seven out of the nine were granted bail, but the two Israeli dissidents I mentioned earlier, Ronnie and Stavert, were are still being imprisoned. Uh, they were the CPS argued that they should not be released on grounds of fear of failure to surrender. Uh, so basically, because they are foreign nationals, they they would be able, you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't get to leave prison. <laughs> they shouldn't be granted bail. Uh, I I was personally at each each hearing. Uh, there were several hearings because of because of the extensive you know let's call them mistakes or maneuvers of the crown prosecution service and the courts uh things kept getting dragged out which meant that people were being held longer and longer before decisions were being made so eventually they were just arguing for these two to be held uh the two the two jewish israelis and it wasn't until the third hearing that they actually acknowledged that they were israeli uh, before then, they had just been describing them as foreign nationals from the Middle East, clearly leaning into implicit racism that they could expect from the assumption that they were themselves Arabs or Palestinian. Uh, you know, the, I, I saw the face of the judge uh, when when the CPS eventually said that they were Israeli, and she was not. She could she clearly understood what was happening and wasn't happy with it. Uh, but it was a different judge who ultimately decided uh, that they should not be allowed bail, even though he did disagree with the CPS's argument that they would be a flight risk. He explicitly said he doesn't think that they would be a flight risk or that the idea that they were a flight risk wouldn't be sufficient grounds to deny them bail. But he called for a lunch break before giving his decision. And basically, over the lunch break, the CPS found that while they were all being kept in custody the two jewish israeli dissidents had been charged for a previous uh, action from may the year earlier where they had they, pre- they had previously been released under investigation from this uh which essentially means that no no charges have have been processed you have completed any bail conditions given. You essentially just have to wait and see if they charge you. Um, and they charge them at, at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night before they went to court. So the courts didn't have this information at first, but once the judge found out about it, he decided that instead of uh, denying them bail on grounds of fear of failure to surrender, which is what the CPS were arguing for, he was going to deny them grounds. He was going to deny them bail on grounds of fear of further offense uh and in the process of this he said uh that essentially reoffending, even though they had no previous convictions and they were released under investigation and had previously cooperated with with the police and courts on all their bail conditions while they had them and they hadn't broken bail because they were released under investigation he said that reoffending while rui'd was essentially equivalent to breaking bail which is completely untrue. 
both on a you know literal semantic level but also legally speaking it's just completely untrue it's not how the law works uh but that was his justification of for the night and then bail so now they are still imprisoned over two weeks after their action so this is our second attempt at this recording because this arrest and this holding kept dragging out and was up in the air and it overlapped with our first attempt so this harshness was unexpected i remember i was talking to you about it and you seemed very distressed, but also confused and uncertain about what was supposed to happen because being part of Palestine action, it sounded like, you know, arrests are something you deal with. You've been to this before, but this was something unprecedented. Yeah. So there is a thing in British law that I think doesn't exist in law in most other countries. So to, to an American audience or to other audiences, it might sound a bit strange, but uh, there's a precedent in British law for what we call accountable actions, uh, which is essentially when a protest group or some other group performs a direct action um, with the intention of being arrested and with the intention of potentially going to court so that they can prove that any theoretical crime they committed was to, was proportion was a proportionate action taken to prevent a greater crime. So the strategy of this is, of course, we're able to do things like shut down factories and then not be charged for it. Uh, a lot of the time, companies like Elbit don't want to take us to court because they don't want to be exposed for the criminals that they are in the courtrooms. Uh, and char- so charges get dropped before it even makes it to trial. Uh, but on the few times that things have gone to trial, we've won basically every single time, uh, except for one time where someone was awarded a suspended sentence, which essentially meant that they got time served for bail conditions and had to pay a small fine. But every other time it's made it to court, it's we've been found not guilty, specifically because uh, you know any allegations of criminal damage or whatever are actually seen as being proportionate actions to stop the greater crimes against both British and international law that these corporations are committing. So when we do these accountable actions, we plan on getting arrested uh, because we plan to usually occupy a site for as long as possible, whether that's to cause as much damage as possible or whether that's to have the site shut down for as long as possible. But these actions are taken with it in mind that we will be getting arrested by the end of them. So that's like part of our usual procedure is getting arrested. Uh, being imprisoned is not part of our usual procedure. It doesn't usually go this way. This is a definite and transparent escalation in police and court, in a police and court crackdown uh, against us. And whether or not that's targeted because of the high profile of these two particular anti-Zionist activists, or whether that's targeted just because of the humiliation of having your headquarters occupied. Because um, the, the site that they attacked on on Nakbade was uh, one of the HQ sites of Elbit Systems UK. They have two UK, they have two UK headquarters. One is an office building in London, and the, this one in Bristol, where this action took place, is a partially an office and partially a factory. 
it does seem like it's ramping up because after the assassination of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh and the assault of her funeral, there have been bans on pro-Palestinian protests in Germany and France. Can either of you tell us if that's spread to where you are and if it seems like it's part of an overall clampdown of pro-Palestinian movements? Yeah, definitely. So just to, to follow up on what's already been said, we've been doing taking direct action against Elbit for over a year and a half and cost them tens of millions of pounds in losses um, and already forced one of their key factories in the north of England to shut down permanently. Mm. So they really don't like us. And the state, as a result, who try and protect these arms companies also don't like us. And I think we can see it, you know, through any successful movement or movement which actually truly poses a challenge to the state or to the status quo, that they are not going to let you succeed without putting some serious obstacles in your way. And the closer and the more disruption we cause for Albert, and the more we grow, because also ahead of this action in Nakba Day, you know, we have had, um, for us, probably an unprecedented level of people joining Palestine Action and willing to risk their liberty to take direct action to shut down, um, to shut Albert down, basically. So I think that this latest crackdown is basically an attempt to do what they can to stop us. Um, and to deter us from taking this type of action. And, you know, we know that this is basically when when they crack down is when they're acting out of desperation um, to basically keep Israel's arms industry running rampant in Britain. And we're just not going to allow that to happen. Um, and And this is just the latest attempt to basically escalated attempt to try and deter people from taking this type of action but actually where they with all of these things you know with with the crackdown in germany where they literally were just protesting right they were protesting in solidarity with the palestinian people 74 years since the nakba began and they were banned from protesting and they did it anyway and they were arrested um as a result but the more repressive that they are internationally in order to stop solidarity with Palestine, um, I, I think you know we are at a crucial point in history. And I think we're at a crucial time where we either fight through and we're probably going to face a lot of you know, unwelcome repression by states internationally to do so. But if we don't, then the apartheid regime is just going to go stronger and Palestine is not going to exist. You know, that's the that's the situation in Palestine. It's shrinking every day because more and more land is being taken. So we are literally in the middle, you know, of the fight for Palestinian lib- liberation. And this is really a key point in time where not only, you know, Palestinians have been resisting this for 74 years, but the global, the way that, Apartheid is globalized. You know, as we talked before about the arms trade being globalized, it means that it also requires people internationally to act with that same urgency. To be honest, you know, campaigning for Palestine 
before Palestine action, we had obstacles in every way. You know, if I wanted an institution like my own university to not invest in such companies, despite the fact that they've already got rules that they can't invest in these type of companies, it was so extremely difficult because the level of support for Israeli apartheid on an institutional and establishment level is so high, but actually the level of support on the grassroots is much bigger. And I think when those people start to act more directly and with more urgency, more unapologetically, that, you know, we're no longer going to, if it's whether it's being in Berlin, seek permission from the authorities to just protest. Or we're not going to beg, you know, the British government who has been part of enabling Israel's regime for over, you know, for over 100 years, they've been enabling the colonization of Palestine. There really is, and we've, you know, I've begged as well. I have done it. I have lobbied over 70 MPs for an arms embargo. I did everything that they tell you you're supposed to do, and I was ignored. And we're no longer willing to accept that. You know, people's lives are at stake. People's freedom are at stake. And if we want to live in a world different to the one which allows such injustice to happen, then it it requires sacrifice, unfortunately. And it's not just for those who are directly at the receiving end of oppression and of the oppressors um, to have to to have to live through that and and you know they don't have a choice. If you're Palestinian, you're on the front line, whether you choose to be or whether you choose not to be. You don't have a choice in that. But for us internationally, we have a choice to step up and put ourselves and put our offering our freedom um, and our liberty on the line in order to change this situation. And we've seen it in in history. This is how things change. It takes stepping out of your comfort zone. Um, and it takes something drastic. And I don't think shutting down factories that produce weapons before they kill people is a drastic measure, but to the state, maybe it is. But whatever their opinion is, we're not going to stop. We're not stopping until Albert stops, until the Nakba stops. And we're not the ones forcing ourselves into that position. We've been forced into that position because of the way that the powerful and the establishment has been profiting from the oppressed for so long. And actually, to a certain extent, we don't really have a choice. You know, when there's such injustice, people have to act. Um, and and for us, we continue to fight and we continue to be inspired by those on the front line in Palestine. And, you know, hopefully one day we'll, we don't have to fight anymore. And there's a term you used. Nakba. The Nakba is what happened in 1948, and that system of ethnic cleansing didn't stop in 1948. It continues to this day, which means more and more Palestinians are bombarded by Israel's bombs, or, or have their homes demolished, and are forced out of their homeland in order to expand um, the uh, Israel's apartheid state, basically. And that continues to this day. And that's when, you know, we say in Palestine action, um, our actions won't stop until the Nakba does, because it's ongoing. To your point, just before we began recording, 
we saw even more violence against Palestinians in East Jerusalem during an ultra-nationalist march. It's basically nonstop, like you said. There's no post-trauma, just continuous trauma. But for the audience, could you tell us about what happened there and how it's part of an overall longer program? Yeah. So basically what we saw yesterday was Zionists, so um, Israelis basically going out with Israeli flags and basically chanting death to Arabs, um, saying that they were basically glad Shireen Abu Akla, who was a Palestinian journalist, Al Jazeera journalist, was killed. Um, They were saying insults that I don't really want to repeat um, about the Palestinian people. And, you know, there are thousands of thousands of them attacking Palestinian women. And this is when they go out and and essentially demonstrate um, what they believe in, which is a fascist apartheid state. And this is, you know, as as you said, it's nothing new. You know, we see this every year that they do this. And there's other marches carried out by settlers. Um, at other points as well, which are basically, it's basically the, the essence is the same. You know, they fly their Israeli flags, they chant death to Arabs, they attack Palestinians, and they're permitted to do this as well, obviously, by the Israeli police and the Israeli military because it's, it's, it's in line with their aims and their objectives, which is to continue their apartheid system over the Palestinians. Um, but like you said, this happens all the all all the time. I I feel like if I switch off for a day and I check what's happened, something else is is happening. You know, you can't we can't ignore it, especially not just me as a as someone who's got Palestinian background, but for those of us and I have privilege you know I was born in Britain right like I I do have massive privilege compared to my family in Iraq and other places in the world and I chose like many others like AJ and other people in Palestine Action and other groups to use that privilege uh, to actually take direct action against companies like Elbit but for all of us you know in the imperial core we have got privilege and which is often built on the backs of the oppression of other people and to show i think uh, to show international solidarity and to show solidarity with the oppressed it requires us with that privilege to act um in solidarity with those with those who are oppressed in palestine and other parts of the world as well and indigenous communities across the world who are facing um similar oppression I had to keep updating my notes in the prep for this talk because new things kept happening like daily on the run up to this appointment. And it really is, to your point, nonstop. Yeah. And that's by design as well. Like, uh, if you, if, if you look at, uh, on the same day at the same time as the Israeli occupying forces were attacking, uh, Shireen's funeral, uh, at the same time, busloads of, uh, Jewish Israeli settlers were being taken to 
the empty apartment blocks of the Palestinians who were in the street, and they were running in and filling the place with their own property and taking over the buildings and claiming the homes for themselves while people were being brutalized in the street. And that was coordinated, just as just as you know, just as people are allowed to do these hate marches, were protected by the occupying forces. It's all coordinated. The same way as it always has been in settler colonialism and in imperialism, the just as the militias were used to instigate the Nakba before the Israeli government was established, it's still militias and it's still you know vigilantes and and you know of settlers who often fly. You know, there's there's loads of common jokes and proverbs of, about Israelis having cousins from brooklyn who like you know if i don't take your house my cousin from brooklyn will (laughs) like because a lot of the time it is people from america who are going over and stealing stealing these homes obviously not just from america and obviously when i say jewish israelis i'm not saying that to stress the judaism i'm saying that to differentiate them from palestinian israelis (laughs) but every time these things happen every time there is something going on like this there is some sort of distraction or maneuver uh, in order to enable the continued expansion, the continued dispossession of the Israeli territory into the Palestinian tor- ter- territory of the Palestinian people from their own homes. And it's, all, it's always coordinated. Just to catch people up, AJ, how was Shireen killed? Shireen was assassinated by a IOF sniper, essentially. Um, so the snipers themselves like are, are are a specific lens that we can look at the occupation through uh because of the way that you know the snipers themselves existing is a way it should prevent Br- uh, british arms companies from being granted licenses uh in the first place to export or to sell to uh israel because if there is any chance that uh, a British weapon can be used in an oppressive way, then like just just a chance, not even like guaranteed. That alone should is supposed to be enough to stop them from being granted a license. But it, as well as that, you can see the change of tactics of the Israeli snipers over over time. In Shireen's case specifically, she was shot in the head from a distance while wearing a bulletproof vest and a bulletproof helmet. Uh, it was a targeted assassination. Uh, because she specifically was a Palestinian cultural hero, um, and she was a renowned journalist who was dedicated to covering uh, the truth of the occupation of Palestine. And she was essentially a hero who could be martyred. She was someone that they could murder to try and disincentivize uh, any sort of action or coverage from further journalists. And also to create the situations like the one we saw at her funeral in order to enable the capturing of more Palestinian land, of more Palestinian property. Uh, but historically, we've seen shifts in tactics from the the Israeli occupying forces sniper teams. They went from essentially killing as many people as they could, uh, and there is a lot of well-documented evidence of them shooting person after person children anyone uh just to kill them 
uh, th- they had a change of tactics. I'm not sure exactly when it was. Maybe it was 2014, maybe slightly earlier, uh, where they instead um, switched ammo uh, to an illegal ammunition type produced by Elbert Systems, uh, which is essentially hollow, hollow point rounds that are uh, designed to cause as much like shrapnel in, in the body as possible. And instead of killing people, they would instead target them intentionally to mutilate them, especially children. Uh, they would target them in kneecaps. They would target them in arms. They, they, would, they would shoot them in places that would mean that they would lose limbs and that they would be disabled or impaired indefinitely, especially while in places like Gaza where they're unable to leave. And the tactic for this was essentially, if you kill a Palestinian, that's just one dead Palestinian. If you maim a Palestinian, then for the rest of their life, they are a drain on resources of the community. So they went to intentionally impairing and disabling Palestinian children, Palestinian activists, so that they would then take away from whatever healthcare resources were available, from whatever food was available. And they want it, they want them to be a continuous drain on resources rather than to, rather than to just be a death. That makes this Shireen's case even more starkly contrasted, and so much more obviously an assassination. I think we've covered quite a bit for people to think about, chew on, reflect on. Thank you both for your time and being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Can you tell us where people can find more info on Palestine Action and ways for listeners to support you? Yeah, definitely. So we have a website, uh, palestineaction.org. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at pal underscore action. We are not on Facebook because we were taken down by the site, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you can contact us through those other places and you can sign up to join us, donate. And if you are in the US and you're looking to do something similar over there, then please just reach out, email us at info at palestineaction.org. Albert has a very large presence in the US and there's plenty that people can do over there to target Israel's arms trade. I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, 
South Pole. South Pole.